Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast. We have a special uh, episode today. And we have two guests. Ben Barros, a pharmacist that consults with Gillette Health. And also uh, Alec McCarthy, PhD in regenerative medicine. That wrote the uh, article, Emerging Roles for Medical Affairs in Telemedicine. So uh, the first topic today is the dark side of science, um, how you can uh, find things that uh, both clinicians and scientists can help prevent. So we're starting with the story. Story time. Uh, this is a story about the demon core, which is a plutonium core. Uh, this is back in the 1940s when they were conducting some essentially early nuclear research. So a scientist by the name of Dalian or Daglion was stacking tungsten bricks around this core. And each brick that he added to this brick enclosure was bringing the core closer to critical mass. While attempting to stack another brick around the assembly, Daglian accidentally dropped it onto the core and thereby caused the core to go well into supercriticality, a self-sustaining critical chain reaction. He quickly moved the brick off the assembly but received a fatal dose of radiation. He died 25 days later. So hindsight is 2020. We would now look back and say, why on earth would you be stacking these reflective bricks around a plutonium core because we understand more about the consequences. But one of those areas, the dark side of science. Interestingly, this isn't the only accident that this core was involved in. I believe there was a second incident before it was melted down and repurposed. That's pretty scary. Um, In healthcare, we have this Swiss cheese model where there's multiple stops. So the medical assistant is looking for a stop uh, perhaps the MSL is looking for a stop as well, and then the healthcare provider is sort of the rind in the Swiss cheese model of healthcare. Uh, it's definitely scary to be working with something that can literally kill you, like radiation poisoning. But it's also scary to be working with patients where you can literally kill them as well. Yeah, I think when I was working in the hospital, it's a great example of how essentially all of us would be functioning within that model. You have the scientists who are doing the research, testing the safety, testing these treatments. You have the physicians that are ordering these treatments for patients. You have the pharmacists that are verifying there's no drug interactions. And then you have myself, an RN at the time, who is scanning things into the electronic health record, yet another layer. Um, 
making sure that there's no interactions there, no contraindications with the patient's current clinical condition. So for to have a bad outcome, really so many things have to go wrong, and it's much better that way, more layers of safety. You know what, it makes me think of a lot of testing that was done and a lot of studies in uh, anabolic steroids with drugs like fluoxymesterone uh, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, that now we would definitely not use those drugs, but back then they were used and, and trialed for uh, recovery and anabolism. And that was very interesting because now we know better about how they are harsh on the liver, uh, all the 17 AA uh, anabolic steroids. And we would see that now thinking, oh my God, there's layers of safety that must be implemented before giving someone 50 milligrams of halo, right? So that's just uh, some of the things that we've seen, I think even recently with the, the ban on the over-the-counter uh, superdrol, right? Or <coughs> epistane, or all those drugs that we're familiar with now, and we're thinking, but didn't need that cause a lot of liver issue, a lot of liver damage, and uh, you go to the local GNC and you, you get something that is really harsh on your liver. How does that happen? And I think now we have obviously much more experience. So we are more cautious. It's not as fun. You don't really see studies on uh, fluoxymesterone or uh, whatever, DMZ or whatever, but yeah, you don't cause as much damage. It raises an interesting question of how do you arrive to these conclusions? Um, and you know, the logical approach has generally been animal models. Right. Uh, and you know, we, we have talked about in the past uh, the, the low clinical translation rates with using smaller animal models. For example, murine um, and rat models have approximately a 2% uh, clinical translation rate. Um, you know, so it's, it's always interesting to see which bodies um, of researchers and clinicians uh, either support or oppose using animal models uh, to elucidate some of these drug interactions uh, and carry out these studies. So then the logical question is, um, if not on humans, what's, what is suitable? Is in vitro, are in vitro studies sufficient? You know, as um, computational chemistry gets better, people are starting to use a lot more um, computational drug ligand, drug-drug interactions. Uh, so I'm curious what you guys think about this. Uh, maybe you can clarify a bit, but intuitively I would think, okay, you have a promising preclinical finding maybe in a, a mouse model. So you think, okay, we'll see, does this translate to human tissue in vitro? So if you have positive findings there, then you say, okay, what about human tissue in a living organism? So you have human cell lines in a mouse model. And then that's when you would progress either upward to human trials, depending on the safety, or to larger mammalian models. But I'm sure you understand the process much better than me. I'm just speculating there. Yeah, that's generally uh, the order of operations. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, inter it's interesting to see which animal models are preferred. In other countries, you often see canine models used, um, horse models used. But in the U.S., generally, um, I think, you know, at least in my experience, we strove to hit pig models, um, porcine models. So it's, you know, it also, back to the dark side of science, brings up, you know, in the past, we learned a lot doing uh, 
ape experiments and monkey experiments. And, you know, and for example, Morgan Island off the coast of South Carolina now has a population of 3,500 Reese's monkeys, um, of which approximately 600 are harvested for studies each year by, um, by the NIH and NA, or NIAID. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's always, um, there's pretty consistent pushback on doing that, but, you know, at the end of the day, if we're not using high fidelity animal models for these tests, the human, you know, humans are really the last experiment. And so there's a lot of, a lot of unanswered questions if you remove that animal model to begin with. It seems like as you go up in size, like nobody has problems with experimenting on fruit flies or nematodes. Some people are like, oh, well, the mice, maybe that's a, a line that some people are not comfortable with crossing. They say, no way. Go to a canine model, people will say, absolutely, no way, can't do that. Go to a primate model, people are like, no, that's too sophisticated of an organism, no way. But then you eliminate all those, you're really escalating the potential harm each time. If you go right to testing on humans, very bad things could happen. Exactly. It, it depends on the potential benefit as well. So are you running a trial on an animal that is purely to see what happens or for toxicity or whatnot? Or are you running a trial that could potentially be therapeutic as well? For example, in the dog aging project, project they give dogs that are prone to certain types of genetically linked cancers due to genetic bottlenecking during the world wars. And they give them a drug that's rapamycin mTOR inhibitor, and it um, it certainly has the potential to help. We know that in mouse models it helps, and it's well tolerated even in human studies. So a project like that, a lot of individuals who are against other forms of canine clinical trials would be okay with that. Yeah, giving the potential for your man's best friend, your pets, your loved ones to live longer, healthier lives. Yeah. So you have to look at the potential benefit, and you know, in general, yeah, I don't know those re the results of that trial haven't been released yet, but I would suspect there would be a low incidence of adverse outcomes and, at worst, a neutral effect, and at best, a positive effect based on the, really the stepping stones that have been you know, studied on the other clinical models, preclinical models. Yeah. Speaking specifically about dogs, it's also interesting to see what outside of clinical trials uh, culture or society is willing to accept. For example, they're willing to accept um, neutering or removing, like, removing the testes of dogs. That's no big deal at all. There is some studies on vasectomies for dogs um, to maintain their quality of life and decrease the incidence of fractures later in life, so on and so forth, and sarcopenia. But that's totally fine. But then if you do a clinical trial that has um, a well-tolerated um, pharmaceutical potential and then relatively low incidence of side effects and the potential for benefit for both canines and humans, then um, that becomes not okay. Agreed. It's a, it's a very complex um, landscape to navigate as a researcher. You know, there's a lot of, of uh, negotiation with IACUC boards and conversations um, with IRB boards, what is the most suitable? Obviously, there are a lot of regulatory bodies that you know you also have to weigh, which 
you know, makes it an extremely complex. It's funny, people often wonder, how is it possible that, you know, an IND, an investigational new drug or device has a 10 plus year pipeline, you know, timeline to, to the market space. This is a great drug. It could help a lot of people. Uh, look how great this preclinical in vitro data is. And then you embark on an extremely long journey and you know this is one of the reasons why is it's an extremely complex you know landscape that you have to figure out what's the appropriate number of animals to use which one you know is uh has the the least harm and, and causes the least harm with the highest benefit um which gene expression profiles uh, for this specific organ or disease state uh, looks like it will translate with the highest fidelity so it is an extremely complex equation. Because you go from computer to in vitro, and then you go to animal, and you have to find the right animal model, and potentially something that would translate well to humans, and then you finally uh, upgrade to the target population, just a really small, uh, high-risk, uh, potentially high-reward uh, human population, so a very small group. That's And then you have uh, phase two trial and, and whatnot, just expand slowly with more uh, candidates. And then finally, you can uh, potentially get the, you know, the, the approval from the FDA. And that's when you publish champagne, obviously, but it's a really, really long process where you start from a petri dish to whatever animal to a small uh, population of humans and hope that everything goes well. And finally, you can expand it. It just it takes a long time and a lot of money. It's interesting to see cases of when um, the efficacy of a certain new drug supersedes the timing. Um, for example, with insulin, I believe, they went from doing trials, I forget if it was pigs or sheep, sheep, but they were doing um, a trial with sheep and they were saving the lives of these um, sheep or pigs with uh, induced type one diabetes, like uh, pancreatic death. And I think it was three months later they were already injecting a, a ton of different kids with insulin. Yeah, for a potential life-saving treatment. Yes. Yeah, it's been such a long and expensive process. I think it's interesting to look at the opposite way, the opposite timeline. So you have drugs that are already out on the market, they've been approved for a long time, and then they find out they have additional mechanisms or additional you know, actions in the body, and they can repurpose those things. And a lot of this is precision medicine where they can look at, you know, oh, you have this particular type of cancer that's known to respond to this. So you know, things like the rapamycin or rapalogs, you've seen some case studies where there are, you know, renal cell carcinomas with a very high vibrator mortality rate. People are like in complete remission for up to seven years. So they're essentially a hyper responder because of the uh, receptors that the, this particular cancer, whenever they go look at the pathologies expressing. So it's just about finding the perfect piece to plug in there uh, and that's really interesting another one uh, simvastatin for example something that i would tend to not prescribe because it has more lipophilicity it's gonna accumulate peripheral tissues and tend to cause more side effects but in the case of like a glioblastoma when you want tissue penetration into the brain for example that could be a useful vector certainly not a cure but it's something that they are looking into because Statins have been associated with some anti-cancer properties, 
and that one in particular has a high degree of penetration into the brain. It's been interesting too from um, from the academic side to see the emergence of uh, of precision medicine uh, research and big data. So you know I think eventually there will be significantly less small animal models used because that can be you know easily replaced by computer modeling. And to the same you know to your point, there are entire PhD programs. Um, based on, on drug repurposing, and all of that is just, you know, big data, um, and, and, you know, it's, a, it's an extremely interesting field that I think will probably have a significant impact on both research and, and clinical practice way, way sooner than a lot of people realize. It's always interesting to know that a lot of drugs uh, they hit the market because it's just, it's not something that was planned. We can talk about uh, Viagra, Sildenafil, the, obviously a pretty well-known medication for erectile dysfunction. That was, that was not the original purpose, right? That was uh, blood pressure. And so we, we find so many things. I, I believe that uh, finasteride for hair loss is also someone, yeah. uh, someone found out that um, there was a benefit for uh, hair regrowth or stalling hair loss as opposed to uh, well, prostate uh, benefits. I mean, there's still prostate benefits, obviously, but it's just it got re-marketed uh, as a hair loss medication and lowered dose, um, and that just happens so often. So, repurposing is something that is common based on real-life observations that may be actually not even uh, intended. Right? It's just uh, you get lucky. <laughs> as providers, is it is uh, is that something that you um, look for? when you are, are deciding what, um, what treatment modalities to use? Are you looking for compounds with multiple therapeutics or therapeutic benefits? Absolutely. It's really common that we pick, uh, for example, with diabetes medications, you pick one that has uh, another benefit. For example, you pick one that has um, a, a weight negative effect to help with body recomposition and weight loss perhaps preventive bariatric surgery. Uh, even with, you know, for example, let's say tolpyrimate, you you're also looking for, um, you might have a benefit of mood stabilization, but a detriment of kidney stones. So if you have a history of kidney stones, you're not near as, as good of a candidate. So you're certainly looking for secondary benefits. Perhaps someone has a bit of adult ADHD and they do better on Contrave or something with bupropion in it. So you're certainly looking for other indications. I think one thing that we run into quite often is the patient is actually looking for other indications. For example, perhaps a patient comes with us and they have a borderline hypertension and they're asking us about, uh, they actually do quite often, a low dose of telmisartan because it's not only an angiotensin receptor blocker or an ARB for blood pressure, it's also a very weak PPAR delta agonist. And maybe they're a marathon runner and think that even that tiny bit of PPAR delta agonism has a fringe benefit. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think uh, these, this is the patient population that you see combing through WADA's watch list every year. They're like, oh, what could possibly have a, a performance enhancing vector here? So you have people that say, oh, there's a little bit of PPAR delta agonism. And there are more potent PPAR delta agonists, which we've spoken a bit about. Um, you know, Carterine is a, a research chemical that 
people are using that has significant cancer risk in preclinical models. So it was essentially scrapped altogether as far as delving into that for a cardiometabolic benefit. But looking at long-term, thinking if somebody is an athlete, they're trying to push the limits, they're in their 30s and they say, oh, I'm going to take this you know, Tomasartan. Well, then maybe they do you know, go on to develop hypertension. Do you want them to have 60 years of low-dose PPAR delta agonism or whenever your immune function starts to decline and your tumor suppressor genes are mutated when you get into your, let's say, 60s, just ballpark, would you switch over to a medication that does not agonize PPAR delta? And that's where the nuance gets really fun and really interesting for myself. Definitely agree. It's a moving target across a lifespan. And often when you're thinking about true preventative medicine, you're finding something that has a that has efficacy, but it is often not very strong or a high dose. Statins are a pretty good example of this for individuals with familial hypercholesterolemia. There's been studies, I believe there's one in Korea, looking at specifically ages 19 to 39. And then they looked at um, ASCVD, or heart attacks and strokes essentially, later on in life in the group that did something for lipid control versus nothing. So doing a very small amount for a long period of time can be a better option than waiting until you have the end pathology. So you're doing, um, you know, instead of primary prevention, it's secondary prevention, but then it's not really even prevention. It's just secondary prevention, you're just preventing recurrence. And often you require much stronger medications, much higher doses, and those have many more side effects. Yeah, by the time you have a vascular event, you already have like, atherosclerosis and substantial plaque buildup in the arteries, that is very hard to reverse. You can see some statistically significant reversals. Um, usually those are with high intensity statins, the addition of PCSK9 inhibitors, or even some very, very low fat plant-based diets, which a lot of people don't like to hear about. So as a provider, um, what would be a low dose that you like someone who is in their 20s or 30s? Um, seems to be at risk. How low do you like to stop with something like rosuvastatin? Often I start all the way down with rosuvastatin at five megs, sometimes even half of that, which is 2.5 megs. Daily. Uh, uh, often even less than daily. There's a study, uh, KU, University of Kansas was one of the institutions, but several of these institutions looked at every other day or three times a week administration for statins. Each statin has a longer or shorter half-life. So rosuvastatin is almost a week, whereas some statins have a very short half-life. So depending on the situation, we like to look at the APOA1 to APOB ratio, and often a lipo profile to look at particle sizes as well. Oxidized LDL. So after you, for example, that's in the example, this person has familial hypercholesterolemia, or um, perhaps they just have a significant dyslipidemia. You want to look at more parameters rather than just an LDL. Uh, the APOA1 to APOB ratio is a really good indicator. This is from old data, actually, the, the InterHard trial. And what I found most striking about that is the highest quartile of APOA1 to B ratio, people with the highest apolipoprotein B levels, actually had a higher hazard ratio than your average smoker. Now, you could ex certainly exceed that depending on the volume and the time, you know, time of exposure to the uh, cigarettes, the smoking, 
And you know, probably the same is true, a good way to look at cholesterol is your time of exposure. So have you had an elevated apolipoprotein B since you were 18? Or did you just develop this in your 40s when you started to have metabolic dysfunction secondary to something like insulin resistance or obesity? Absolutely. This is why you see a lot less lipidology clinics. They're changing over to cardiometabolic clinics. Instead of trying to separate the same field into two different halves of the same coin, it's just a cardiometabolic clinic. It's really interesting to do all those uh, all those testings uh, with uh, genetic health when we look at uh, complete health uh, and cardiac health. We look at everything, right? We just cannot prescribe a statin based on LDLC and HDL anymore. You really want to look at the lipo profile. You want to look at particle size. There's a very interesting debate, obviously, about cholesterol where people will say, well, LDL is just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, doesn't really mean anything. And I'm always playing devil advocate. I'm saying, okay, well, it doesn't matter, but let's look at the lipo profile. And then it says your particle size is totally uh, inflammatory or associated with inflammatory. Uh, and maybe your oxidized LDL is high and your small dense LDL is also high. So uh, are we going to still say it doesn't matter, LDL doesn't matter? Uh, and you know, you want to have the full picture. You cannot just guess based on LDL, I get it, but we definitely want to test for more. And that's, that's pretty much what we do. Uh, and the APOA1 over APOB ratio is very important as well. That's, I think that should be pretty standard before getting anyone on a statin. Uh, and it's very interesting when we look at the results. You can have, or you can have, I mean, it's, it's quite rare actually. You can have a pretty good LDL over HDL, the basic lipid panel looking good. And then for the rare people who say, well, I just want to test everything. And then you can have a good LDL and then oxidized LDL is through the roof. I've seen that recently. Um, so you want to work on obviously antioxidant uh, slash oxidant ratio of uh, you know, you want to you want to make sure someone is why are they oxidizing that much? So, and what about the antioxidant? But it's uh, it's interesting to see a lot of people saying, well, LDL doesn't matter, and now we test for more, and everything is in the red. So, you know, when does something stop to matter? So, what would be the, the biggest uh, test, or what the, the not the biggest test, the most important test you want to look at? Uh, beyond LDL, what would be the, you know, you have oxidized, you have small dense, you have APO A1 over APO B. It's a, we get this question from clinicians and patients often, and the answer is you look at as many vectors as possible. So you're looking at your dyslipidemia vector, you're looking at your, uh, which includes APO B, APO A1, oxidized LDL, lipo profiles. You're also looking at your insulin resistance or um, the other cardiometabolic vector. So you're looking at your HOMA IR ratio, you're looking at your fasting insulin, you're looking at your CGM, then you're also looking at your inflammatory vector. For example, if you have psoriatic arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, that in and of itself is a significant risk factor for ASCPD, which is the heart attacks and strokes, plaque in the arteries where you don't want them. So that's obviously inflammatory, nicotine use is inflammatory, even just a high CRP. So if the individual has Crohn's and their CRP is high most of the time, perhaps they're myeloperoxidase. Um, you want to check all of your different inflammatory markers and also your acute phase reactants. For example, platelets. If your estrogen runs higher, your platelets tend to run higher and your SHBG tends to run higher as well. Um, 
So all of those things, you look at them as one picture, and that's, um, I think that that is a huge positive of individualized medicine. So you're not just going by an algorithm. The algorithm says, you know, LDL over 130, do an ASCVD 10 year risk. It's not gonna give you a, um, you can look at a lifetime risk as well. But if an individual wants to live more than 10 years, they probably need to look at a risk past their 10 year risk. Yeah, the 10 year risk is quite short sighted. It's like, if you're thinking about planning for retirement or filling up a savings account, it's like, well, I'm only gonna have this much in 10 years, why would I start investing now? So if you look at your lifetime, like, oh, by the time I'm 60, 70, I'm going to have quite a, quite a good amount of savings. So you want to kind of think of that as your health reserves and being very proactive. And I think a, a checklist can be applied. So you're looking at, you know, the ApoB or just your lipidology in general, even some genetic things like lipoprotein little a. And you're also going to look at any current disease states. And that's where it's very individualized. So, for example, regardless of what somebody's, you know, lipids look like if they're diabetic you know they do stand to benefit in general from a even a low dose of a statin and i think the type 1 diabetes guidelines are particularly interesting because type 1 diabetics have such a high risk of vascular events and all kinds of you know sequelae from the disease process but the guidelines currently seem to indicate you know wait until they're 40 and then you start a statin and for me that seems more like a reactive approach than being proactive because they didn't become in most cases mm -hmm. type 1 diabetic at age 40 although we do see some later onset type 1 diabetes and to your point about the autoimmune conditions um, there's a bit of a autoimmune component to atherosclerosis if you look at the t-cell immune cells that get dysfunctional as people increase in age they are going to tend to kick off that inflammatory cascade to try and remove the cholesterol from that subendothelial space and cause damage in doing so. And looking at things that are immunomodulatory, there was a, I believe an interleukin 10 inhibitor that showed mild benefit in patients with the highest level of C-reactive protein. And this was on top of the standard therapy. So you don't pull somebody off of a current therapy that we know works to test out a new therapy. It's typically an adjunct which is why the PCSK9 is so impressive and the interleukin 10, I believe it was, was not all that impressive. But I would be interested to see that deployed in patients with autoimmune dysregulation because yeah. then you know, oh, they're going to be in that high, well, assuming they have more periods of inflammation, they're gonna be in that high CRP category. So they may be a subset of patients that stands to benefit much more from that therapy. That is particularly interesting both for autoimmune pathologies and also for infectious pathologies. So just uh, your hyperactive immune system after an infection, quite interesting. One other thing that uh, people often ask about is if you look at the expert opinion, so again, it goes back to your pyramid of levels of evidence where your systematic reviews, meta-analyses, randomized controlled trials, cohort studies, case control studies, and then expert opinion. The um, whatever is covered, and we get this question literally all the time, whatever is covered is not necessarily based upon the highest level of evidence. So there could be excellent randomized controlled trials or even systematic reviews, or even a Cochrane review that says, yes, this is helpful in this category, but it is not covered. For example, we no longer, uh, very few insurance companies want to 
cover laboratory monitoring for creatine kinase for those on statins. So a, a proxy of muscle breakdown, which also is going to be higher if you exercise often. And also many um, do not routinely recommend checking a CoQ10, which is a, an enzyme that can be depleted during statin therapy. Yet for the individual who wants to um, have uh, as much benefit with a minimally efficacious dose, those two things are arguably very helpful. Yeah, the, the CoQ10 depletion and creatinine kinase levels could be your dose-limiting findings for a statin. You push up the dose of the medication to achieve a more therapeutic effect. Anytime you have an increase in dose, you tend to have an increase in the potential for side effects. And also depends on how quickly or how slowly people are metabolizing drugs because we've all heard the anecdotes and case studies and even now with the pharmacogenomic research coming out that people don't respond to the same medications the same way as much as that would make everyone's jobs much easier. Uh, it certainly makes it more interesting. There's very interesting uh, variations uh, when it comes to metabolism of those uh, medication that could be in the liver or in the kidneys uh, we were looking at yesterday we were looking at the glucuronidase uh, differences in populations so something like testosterone uh, is actually excreted in, in the urine by um, most people I mean that's what we would think and now we have case studies where we would inject 500 milligrams and uh, you, you have 40% of the uh, the patients that were tested that were the, in, in that study that were recruited um, in whom you will not see testosterone in the urine so it makes you think of what's going on when you're going to test for doping and you actually uh, have people who may take testosterone uh, and they know that it's not excreting in the urine because they have a different um, metabolism in terms of their genetics so uh, it's very interesting to look at difference in, differences in population uh, for any drug, obviously I'm, I'm saying testosterone, but that could be any statin, uh, that could be, I was reading about Tylenol, uh, although Tylenol doesn't seem to have that variability, but it just depends on the drug, and that's really interesting to look at it. Um, a lot of the research may be done mostly in Caucasian populations, but you would want to look at Asians, uh, Africans, so you, you kind of, because there's going to be a uh, interracial difference in uh, metabolism of drugs, which is really interesting to look at. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why they came up with the biologic passport system, where they track an individual over a long period of time. They can track ratios of testosterone to epitestosterone. And then also, um, from the clinical side, it's a great indicator that precision genomics can make a big difference. So you have insurance cover things like genome or testing for single nucleotide polymorphisms for oncology. But those are able to be checked for pretty much any drug. It's just a matter of, do you have that data? And is there somebody that is a clinician rather than a scientist that is willing to go comb through that data and find its clinical applicability? So, so as a patient, how do you make sure that you have access to this level of individualized care? Because it sounds like you, you really need you know, to have a clinician who is extremely familiar with navigating these types of databases and tuning this, you know, to this degree of personalized medicine, uh, how does a patient guarantee that this happens? Or what can they do to make sure that, you know, they're seeing a clinician that has these resources? 
the analogy that I like to make when you're finding a clinician is when you're looking for an answer, um, whether it's a, an answer about health optimization, you're trying to have optimal athletic or cognitive performance or just a very long health span, that is a relatively difficult question. Or if you think you may have a zebra, which is what we refer to as like rare diagnoses, that's also a difficult question. If you have a difficult question um, and you're in a class, you don't just ask the per you don't just ask the teacher. So you don't just ask the society that makes the guidelines or like look online for that. You don't just ask this who you think the smartest kid he or she is in class. You would ask everyone and look everywhere for the answers, and you would look and see what other people have found that have had similar questions. And um, that's probably why a lot of people listen to podcasts like these. Right. And then you would shop around. So just like, uh, you know, if you had a, let's say you have a race car and you're trying to have uh, perfect performance or find something that you think is wrong with it, you would likely go to several different mechanics and see what their opinion is and then um, choose them over a long period of time for a period of many years and then work with them in tandem over years um, doing a process that we call shared decision making which is we know your goals whatever it is and then we are willing to continue to dig there's always more digging to be done and i never like to say this is due to aging and i also never like to say we've done everything that we're able to do because there's always more digging yeah and finding a clinician that is going to take their time and dig into whatever your particular question is, is typically not going to be in the traditional medical model inside of insurance and organizational constraints. You're typically going to find that outside of that model. Now, for example, all the time we'll have patients ask us questions like, I read about this supplement or I, I saw this, you know, this scientist that said that this will lower my blood pressure, lower my cholesterol. And it's important to go and look at those studies with a, a nuanced eye because is that you know extra serving of blueberries lowers blood pressure? Is that by two millimeters of mercury or is that by 20 millimeters of mercury? Because you can have, it's something we say all the time, a statistically significant difference, but it's not going to make a clinically significant difference. Same thing with uh, cholesterol lowering supplements or supplements that can move the HDL and LDL numbers around. You know, maybe it's a five or 10 point difference, but is that going to translate to you know, treating somebody with familiar type of cholesterolemia? Can I just take uh, citrus bergamot instead of a PCSK9 inhibitor? No. Yeah, and I think this is one of the reasons why interest, I think I saw a 5,000% increase in searches for functional medicine and integrative medicine because people intuitively know that if they have a problem that is not one of the algorithmically solved problems within our current system, they seek um, healthcare outside. So there's a 5,000% increase in searching. But um, when you're looking at the intersection of conventional medicine and functional medicine, there is not a good standardized, you know, there's like no Cochrane review, uh, there's no um, up to date specifically for functional medicine. Right. There's also, going back to, to the last point, uh, it's something that we talked about yesterday. There's a ton of journals. There are a ton of publications. Um, you know, and you don't need to have a medical background. You don't need to have an MD or a PhD or a PharmD uh, to sit down and, and gain a meaningful insight 
from medical literature, but there is a caveat, which is how do you know which studies are good? How do you know which journals are reputable? Uh, and you know, to a patient, what should they be looking for? And we could even you know, take it one step back uh, even further. How do they even access medical literature uh, you know, of the same, the same quality that a healthcare provider you know, could access? Uh, that's a great question, and a lot of times there are journals that, you know, healthcare providers, unless your organization does not, if, unless your organization is subscribed to that journal or has some sort of partnership, those articles are typically going to be behind a paywall. So personally, I've reached out to some, you know, PIs or whoever the correspondent is for the, the article, and they're more than happy to send over a PDF most of the time to get you access to that information. But for your, you know, layperson, should they be sending out emails to the authors? Should they be going to a, a public library, perhaps, that has some of these sorts of memberships? What would you say for the layperson who wants to get access to that research um, and then talk about those things with a, a qualified provider? How would they actually get to the articles in the first place? I think a really good place to start is Google Scholar um, or PubMed, where you can filter um, articles uh, by open access. So open access or Creative Commons published articles, uh, you know, are free to read. They're not behind a paywall, um, and generally, you know, they're easy to for for somebody to search, find, and download the PDF. Um, you know, and there there are institutions like you mentioned where uh, you know if you have an institutional login, you probably have you know access to a significant number of journals. Um, but you know, to the layperson, that doesn't—that's not super helpful. Um, I think that ResearchGate is also a really useful tool, where you know it's free. It's a free um, platform. It's basically scientific and clinical Facebook. Um, but most of, of the publications there, whether or not they're open access, um, you at least can can make a specific request for a PDF of, of a paywalled article, for example. That being said, does it make a lot of sense for for a provider or a patient to spend a tremendous amount of time uh, reading all of the literature out there? Definitely not. You know, so it, I guess I have my thoughts on on sort of how to approach a literature review. What uh, what do you guys do, or how do you make sure that you're not wasting your time? This is one of the things that you learn to adapt to in medical school as well. They have journal clubs, and you look at the article very critically and constructively at the same time. And you're looking at all parts of the article and what its limitations and benefits are. And you're looking at what the goal of the article is as well. So there's a couple different ways to approach it. If you're doing a peer review, then you write out that info and you try to be helpful and then you take whatever knowledge you can away. And then if there's something in the conclusions, before you even read the conclusions, that you did not think was uh, portrayed um, as well as it could be, then just keep that with a grain of salt. That's why we have the peer review process. I think that starting with review articles is probably a really, uh, really beneficial, or a beneficial starting point specifically for patients. You can definitely extract the most information 
um, in the least amount of time with a, a, a reputable review article, a, um, you know, and it, it's easy to get lost in in one of the three to four hundred references cited in a review. So I, you know, I always think that at least during my PhD, if I was starting a new project or reading about a particular disease state, uh, I would always start with multiple reviews before I would get, you know, into the weeds of the data. Definitely, you go, you go down that tier of So if you're looking for a specific question and not necessarily just evaluating the article, you want to start with systematic reviews or meta-analyses. And that's why some journals are more patient-friendly. For example, uh, Cochrane Review or New England Journal, um, you know, they have their pros and cons, of course, but they are quite patient-friendly when you compare it to most journals. Right, agreed. Yeah. And it's interesting, sometimes we'll have the case where a patient, they have an article, uh, because you know, basically if you're looking for something in the literature, you can find that yeah. either in vitro or preclinical. You know, we, we joke, you go to imright.com and you, you know, here's your answer. But the patients will say, well, what do you think about this article? And you look at the sample size that was involved in the study. Is it 10 people or is it 10,000 people? You look at the you know, differences in the, the control group versus the intervention group, if it is a you know, interventional trial. And there's just many things that you pick apart there. Sometimes you'll look at the subgroup analyses, which are you know, showing a statistically significant difference, but it's not adequately powered. So subgroup analyses in general are more for hypothesis generating than applying to a clinical population. A great example of this is uh, some of the aspirin trials you know, way back when that was being investigated for treatment of you know, acute MI. And they actually had a pretty difficult time showing benefit. Um, but eventually one of these trials showed a, a strong favorable effect on acute MI and aspirin. But the uh, initial submission actually got rejected. Uh, I believe this was the New England Journal of Medicine. I may be mistaken there, but it was a prestigious journal. And they said, hey, we want you to do a subgroup analysis. So the investigators of that study did their subgroup analyses by uh, astrological sign. And they actually found two astrological signs that had no benefit from aspirin therapy. Mm. Now, that's certainly not evidence-based medicine, and it just shows the, uh, you know, the, more the more ways you slice and dice the data, the more likely you are to find something just by coincidence. It's hard to imagine a world where they go into an ER, what's your date of birth? Oh, nothing we can do for you, no. sorry. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting um, coming, you know, leaving academic science um, and then going into medical affairs. So, uh, so I, I work um, in dermatology and you read literature that, you know, is a statistically significant difference in dermal thickness um, of, uh, you know, let's say 70 nanometers. And is that clinically observable? Does that, da does that data matter to the providers and to the patients? Is it observable? Probably not. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's always, and especially with, uh, you know, in the, in sort of this, this supplement and, and nutrition world we live in where, you know, very, very marginal or, st you know, statistically significant, but is it clinically relevant? Uh, it's always, it's always an interesting debate. What do you guys, uh, how do you how do you frame that for a patient? Maybe there is some benefit, but is it significant? Is this worth your time or money? Mm -hmm. you, you have to have 
you have to see it through two different lenses and it has to kind of pass the test. And the first test is um, what you see in the literature, the statistical significance. And um, you know, that's not just p-values and odds ratios, but you're trying to find, every patient is an in of one. Yep. So even if you're finding the most specific group with all confounding variables addressed, each patient is going to not perfectly align with um, any one study but you try to apply it as well as you potentially can. And then you're also viewing it through the lens of your clinical experience. And I think this is one place where perhaps uh, nurse practitioners and medical doctors, DOs and MDs are somewhat different since DOs and MDs are slightly more, um, they have a more scientific background, especially in the first couple years of medical school. And then they develop the experience later on Whereas if you're from a nursing background, you develop that experience first, and then theoretically go on to develop the uh, more scientific background. Yeah, it's really an interesting comparison because the initial nursing school, say somebody's going for an associate degree of nursing, they're gonna go work in the ICU. You have to have a rudimentary understanding of the, you know, the pathology behind what you are treating, what you're giving medications for, when not to give that medication, but it is very simple. And then you learn through your clinical experience, as opposed to in the setting of a, an MD, you are essentially stacking four years of, you know, the background, the foundation of everything, and then building the, cl the clinical skills on top of that. Whereas the, I guess the route to an NP is sort of a very small foundation of, you know, anatomy, physiology, pathology, and then you have a varying window of clinical experience. I think the larger that window of clinical experience, the more valuable that is prior to embarking on you know, a path to further your education, for example, going to get a, a master's or a doctorate in nursing practice. You want to have some experience so that you are getting a, a number of hours exposed to the patients, the pathology, the more time you spend around patients, the more things you're gonna pick up on. And a lot of it is latent learning. You may not even realize it, but you are learning. And you get out of it what you put into it. You could see a new condition come across, like, oh, I've never heard of this before. Probably never see it again. Or you could say, oh, this is a new condition I've never heard of. I'm going to look into this. Mm -hmm. So I strive to be a lifelong learner. And I had probably six years, if I'm thinking correctly, where I was a you know, working RN full-time prior to becoming a nurse practitioner. So I feel like that time frame, and also the fact that I worked in a float pool. So I went to all these different units of the hospital. I wasn't just in the cardiology bucket or just in the nephrology bucket or just in orthopedics. I was able to get exposed to all that different pathology. I think that's really you know, expedited my, or cut my learning curve as far as like understanding about each different body system. It's an interesting, or it's a, it's a nice segue into, you know, how, how do our degrees differ? How are they similar? How long did they take? And, you know, what do we do now? And where do we see others with our, our degrees working um, in and outside of healthcare? We can even add a, a layer of complexity because I was uh, going to pharmacy university in France and I don't want to speak for all of Europe, but I just know the training in France is different from the training in North America. 
I had a lot of my friends back in the university that wanted to go to uh, Quebec just because obviously for French language. They were saying that's really difficult because of the strong emphasis on clinical as opposed to way more uh, just you know scientific background. It's just years and years and years in university in, in France where we would spend uh, five years just you know at the university with professors that were very interesting but we were not really doing clinical up until the fifth year where you finally go into the hospital and you meet with uh, patients and pharmacists and now you can do uh, PK and PD and apply it to real life as opposed to just going by the book. So we spent a lot of time and uh, the feedback that I got from my friends who went to Canada were uh, that in Canada it was much more clinical emphasis and so it's, uh, it's, it was difficult for them uh, but that was on, on the fourth year. So they would go one year early compared to everybody else who would go to the hospital on year five. And uh, just a different way to train. Uh, and I know that for myself, I'm going to get my license in, in the United States. Uh, I've looked at how it all goes and that's definitely way more clinical, which I think is good. Even yesterday we were talking with Alec about the fact that pharmacists get uh, a course for injections. Um, so I looked it up this morning, I was curious. I, I know that was recent in, in France where pharmacists would inject their patients for uh, a vaccine. And that's been uh, optional and uh, but recommended as of 2019. So it's pretty, it's pretty uh, recent that you know, finally you can get a script, bring it to your pharmacist and get a, a shot for you know, the flu or whatever. So those are different. And, and I guess in the United States, it's probably more uh, in, in Canada, more uh, advanced in that sense. So what did you learn in pharmacy school? Can you kind of break it break it down? Oh, you get a lot of physiology, you get a lot of uh, organic chemistry, you get a lot of uh, even some physics to get started for the first couple of years. Um, and then you go, as years go by, you go more into um, immunology, uh, you know, uh, cardiology, but this is very theoretical, so you just look at all the drugs that are being used, obviously, with a pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics standpoint. But, you know, it's just, uh, you go by the book and uh, that's just how it goes. And then you apply that, applied pharmacokinetics will be in, on, on the fifth year. So, you, you know, you just spend a lot of time looking at the epidemiology, uh, looking at the physiology, um, some anatomy as well, not as much as the MDs, obviously. But yeah, it's it's just uh, it is a lot of uh, book reading, and uh, that's the way it's it's trained in France. I don't know how it is in, in the UK in Germany. Uh, I mean, compared to every single country, obviously, but it's not as uh, it's not as strong. I mean, again, it's it's what I've heard and it's what I've seen now, and I'm uh, getting the into the process of getting a license. It's just uh, it's different, right? It, you don't have as much clinical. That's the, that's the big thing. Just, during your fifth year, did you routinely work in an interdisciplinary team or specifically the pharmacy team? For example, did you round with the residency or medical yes. students? Twice a week, uh, round with the residents and uh, the head of the, the unit. So for me, that was um, um, infectiology. So uh, we were working specifically with uh, the pharmacist that was there as a resident, uh, so me and, and her. We were working on uh, specific uh, antibacterial uh, treatments, so you know, just uh, looking at uh, potential resistance to bacteria. 
and uh, that was our thing. But then you would we would go to the round table. We wouldn't really, not really talk too much, but just kind of listen to what the the doctors and the, the head of the clinic were uh, were talking about. Uh, go out and meet with the patients. Um, there was that I was doing this, and then, then I had another semester doing um, hematology. So I saw a lot of blood work, <laughs> which is what I'm still doing now with Jet Health. Uh, saw a lot of blood work, and that was that was very interesting. So we had some more, more of a research uh, side of things with um, you know, just looking at different uh, pathologies, but like apply in real life. And so it took four years to get there. Finally, you can actually see real people with, uh, and and then yeah, you get to meet the researchers, you get to meet the the, the MDs, you get to meet the nurses. So you kind of step out of the, the pharmacy and pure pharmacy training. There was a lot of biochemistry. There was there was a lot of that. Um, so we don't go to college and get an undergrad and then go to farm school. So you kind of get all of that together, mm-hmm. and then finally get to uh, go out and do more clinical stuff. So where do you see, uh, besides clinics, where do you see pharmacists working predominantly? Or what are, what are some common um, non-traditional roles that you see your classmates or PharmD colleagues in? Um, there's been, I mean, obviously the, the big part would be just you know, regular pharmacies, like in the United States that would be CVS, Walgreens. Um, you get a lot going to uh, medical affairs, actually. You get a lot going to quality. Uh, you get a lot going to uh, regulatory. Uh, you get a lot going to um, cosmetics. Uh, that's that's there's a, a big segue into cosmetics for a lot of us. Uh, so the industry part of it is quite important. Um, and then you get, I would say, a minority going to um, the hospital and, and clinics. Uh, it's just an extra four years in France, so you, you become an intern, and it's it's quite tough. Um, and I would say only the the most motivated and, and the great A plus students go into the the clinical side of things. So a lot of respect for them. Uh, I went into marketing myself because I wanted to kind of segue into business, and uh, yeah, so I got an extra year of training for marketing and strategy, which was quite a lot of pharmacists, engineers could actually get in there. Uh, so we had a we had a big class of half pharmacists, half engineers, uh, which was interesting. So we got training for medical devices, how uh, to get them on, on, on the market, but more from a, a marketing standpoint. So I definitely see that. I definitely see more pharmacists integrated into the clinic. That's one of the things that I missed about academia is the interdisciplinary team where they have the pharmacist right there and the PhDs as well. Um, with the advent of Precision medicine, so precision pharmacokinetics, genomics. Um, you have a background in engineering as well, so um, you have uh, more a couple different hats. Yes. Yeah. So um, my my bachelor's was in biological systems engineering, and my PhD uh, was in regenerative medicine and biomaterial design. So still. Uh, Still got to wear the engineering hat, um, but also interface um, in a hospital setting, um, even in some patient-facing uh, research roles. Uh, so, but everybody's PhD um, is extremely different. Uh, I can't obviously. I, I really only know biomedical science, 
um, and clinical uh, PhD. So, you know, all of all of my insight is uh, is really in the hospital and the research side of things. Obviously, you can get a PhD in just about anything, but yeah, uh, yeah there's there are a lot of similarities I think uh, between um, PhDs and PharmDs in terms of what they go on to do. But our education, you know, is significantly different. Uh, where um, a PhD student generally takes the GRE um, and matriculates in a certain program, whether it's immunology, in my case it was regenerative medicine, uh, and you spend generally the first two years taking didactic classes. Um, and, you know, occasionally these are with uh, PA students, PT students, depending on the university. Um, MD students, uh, you know, you see a, a, a huge variety um, of the types of students in your classes, which is really interesting. Um, but generally, the first two years are didactic, uh, and the education is structured more like um, an undergrad, where you have a variety of core classes. You know, for us, it was macromolecules, um, physiology, anatomy, uh, medical immunology. Um, cell signaling and really in the second year is where you start to become more specialized in your education, right? So uh, the saying in, in um, around PhDs is you get really, really good. You, you learn everything about one tiny, tiny uh, little subject. And part of that I think is by choice. Uh, you know, when I was getting my PhD, I didn't want to do that, you know, so I sought extracurriculars in the clinic um, and, you know, and, and really branched out from a basic um, research lab, so a basic science research lab, uh, and started, you know, working on the clinical side of things, but, um, so you don't have to fall into that trap if you get a PhD, um, but that being said, you also, you know, the most significant part of getting a PhD is carrying out primary research. So generally, PhD students have to uh, publish um, at least one first author publication, uh, but generally the requirements are, are more than that. Um, so this is you know, carrying out laboratory um, or clinical research and publishing it in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, which is no easy task and takes a long time, um, and generally, uh, for at least for PhDs, most of them stay in academia. So the logical, or I guess the the, the general process after graduation is joining um, a postdoc, which you know the the equivalent for an MD would be a residency, and you know a postdoc generally is anywhere from two to five years, um, with the hopes that you become a professor. Um, and I would say that the other majority, the, the rest of these uh, PhDs go into industry. And really this is where the similarities are with the PharmDs. Uh, they go into medical affairs as medical science liaisons or medical information specialists. You know, at least in my experience, our medical information team is made up of, of pharmacists and PhDs. Uh, medical affairs teams generally are made up of PharmDs, PhDs and MDs or DOs. Uh, and you see them, you know, a lot in in R and D as well. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities, I think, uh, outside of academia, and and you know, generally, 
I, my assumption was as I left academia, I would be collaborating significantly less. Uh, but that has been the complete opposite. I found, you know, that my day to day is is consistent engagements with physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, RDs. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see where my classmates, you know, have kind of ended up. Uh, but all of them have stayed in medical research except the select few uh, that are are in venture capitalism, or I guess. Uh, haven't stayed in research, but stayed in, in medicine. What would be your advice to clinicians? Um, during training, a lot of clinicians, especially medical doctors, worked on a few studies and they have interest in it. But a lot of these individuals are no longer in academia and they're no longer associated with um, industry. So they're at, at clinics, hospital associated clinics, private clinics. How can they get tied in to help um, regenerate that? Great question. Um, <clears throat> there are a few ways. The first one that, uh, that I would tell to that type of provider and I would also tell to a PhD student is, uh, you know, there are no rules on what you um, can and can't investigate as long as you're doing it legally, uh, you know, obviously. Um, and you can publish that on your own. If it's something that you're passionate about, you know, like I know that you and I have published in the past, you know, and, and are, you know, will be publishing again soon. And this was an unfunded study outside the scope of my previous research uh, and really outside of the scope of your practice, but it was something that we were passionate about. So, you know, we generated meaningful data and there are no, uh, well, there may be limitations whether or not the author has to have a terminal degree uh, or, or some, you know, some type of medical degree um, but you can just try. The other approach is to make a connection with industry. And this is a really important um, collaboration. And this, I think, drives some of the most meaningful research uh, that's going on where um, a provider uh, may, may know their sales rep or may have an idea for a certain drug or device. Um, they should be put in contact with their medical science liaison. And this is where um, investigator-initiated trials uh, really um, come to life. So let's say that as a physician, you've got an idea, maybe it's an off-label um, application of a drug, or it is, it is a novel observation you've made in practice. I'm seeing this outcome that I see is void in the literature. Uh, you would liaise with um, a medical science liaison, so another MD, PharmD, or PhD, and develop that idea together. And that is, is a very viable and rather streamlined uh, way to, to begin clinical research. You know, and I think it's also interesting to see uh, young physicians go that route and really start to establish themselves in their therapeutic area. You know, and the down, you know, the long-term downstream ramifications of that are building, you know, industry relationships um, and generally that leads to speaking or presenting at conferences or congresses, uh, which in turn drives more collaborations and that may look like clinical trials, uh, pipeline studies. Um, so that really, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, to, um, in my line of work, to, to start to work with MDs that have never done any research but have great ideas and all of a sudden you see them take you know, a very research heavy 
role with their industry collaborators? Something I've seen uh, last year when we were at the A4M, you would have researchers look at, uh, I believe from their personal experience, looking at the uric acid and metabolic syndrome. And something that then prompted me to do more research on uric acid, because I thought that's just, you know, allopurinol, uh, gout, whatever, it's just uric acid. You don't really pay too much attention to it. It's just a small, cheap marker. And now uh, I kind of want to look at it in pretty much everyone because of the association between uric acid and metabolic syndrome. And that's because of, you know, obviously someone else going out and observing <laughs> from their practice as an MD that was uh, the, the one uh, presentation about it. And I thought that was very interesting because, yeah, that's just what they see. And then, oh, there's a theory, there's a hypothesis. And then they go on and on, and eventually it becomes uh, something that may be impactful. Uh, and, yeah, it's something you have to be passionate about. And as long as you you, you kind of go and uh, observe it, and uh, if it's meaningful, uh, you know, you want to you want to publish. I think it's it's there's nothing wrong with it. Um, it's a good example of if you notice something anecdotally in your practice, it's great if you share that with the community, especially people with a similar patient population. But it should be presented as that. So it's not like right. you're presenting, for example, uric acid, um, don't check a fasting insulin, don't do a CGM, don't check an A1C, just check uric acid. Obviously that's not the case. Right. So it's good to present it as, this is something I've noticed, we don't know this, the uh, significance of this, but it is a useful tool when I've used it. And we certainly share our findings um, publicly and also amongst ourselves as almost like a, it reminds me of an academic center when we have people, uh, essentially an interdisciplinary team at Gillette Health and we share findings amongst each other and use that to apply different topics clinically. A lot of individuals who listen to our podcast or who are interested in our individualized medicine project have lots of different degrees. We have PTs, DCs, NDs, um, a, a whole host of different degrees, PAs and NPs, of course, NDs and DOs. And a lot of them ask, uh, a lot of them are also practicing, practicing uh, functional medicine providers. And often we get the question, you know, like how do we know what to try to see and what to try to refer on? And it can be a very difficult question to answer, but just keep in mind there's been many different studies, even with MDs and DOs, and MDs and DOs provide a higher quality of care if they're part of an interdisciplinary team. So what I um, encourage other healthcare providers to do, uh, including MDs and DOs, but especially so if you're applying new scientific topics and you may not have that same degree of background in your training, it's even more important to work with an interdisciplinary team just so that that Swiss cheese is as thick as possible, and ideally, at the end of it, you would have an MD or a DO as the ride. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. The more eyes you have crawling the clinical literature or observing what's going on anecdotally with patients and in the lab work and from a pharmacology standpoint, the more successful and the stronger that team is going to be. You know, Four brains is always going to be better than one. 
And I like what you said about always being plugged in with an interdisciplinary team. Because as a, a nurse practitioner, I, I kind of get caught up in this where, you know, there's a huge push for independent practice and I'm not sure that it's fully warranted. You know, I don't have an issue being plugged in with the team. I, w I don't want to be on my own island over here treating patients independently. You know, I like to be plugged in and always have someone that I can go to and say, hey, you know, have you seen this before? Or, you know, hey, what do you think about, you know, this theory? Because you know, I'm always, you know, tinkering. I'm not necessarily thinking, okay, I'm going to treat hypertension, diabetes, lipids, and then anything else I'll refer. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some people, you know, primary care providers that they treat the common pathology and then they refer out, and that's an important service. Yeah. A lot of times primary care does get a bad rap because, you know, they don't know exactly what's going on, but there's just so much pathology now, we know so much more that you almost, you have to have specialists that you can refer out to, and knowing when to refer and when not to refer is very important. So I think whenever people who have vastly less you know, medical education and less clinical experience. For example, a new MD that's completed residency versus a new NP that's completed clinical hours. Some states that's around 600 hours and then they can be independent. Uh, the university that I went to was, I believe, 750 hours of clinicals and I actually participated in some extra clinical hours because I had really good rapport with my internal medicine physician that was my preceptor at the time. He had been in practice for 30 years, seen lots of great things, so I was always writing things down and stashing away these clinical pearls that would come about whenever we were you know, going and seeing the patients and taking a very autonomous role but also having backup at the same time. And I have heard some you know, more unfortunate cases where the NPs are essentially shadowing during their clinical hours. They're not doing the differential or the critical thinking, and then a lot of times they get into practice they're overwhelmed, they think it's not for them, so then they'll go back and end up working at, as an RN, um, still having the NP degree, but just it wasn't for them, and it's not for everybody, so it's important to realize it is a very autonomous role if you want to pursue that and complete it, but even though you're functioning autonomously, you want to be plugged in with other medical professionals, just like any healthcare team should be. So what did your um, education look like? Can you kind of talk about your route to being an NP and how the um, how those classes differed from what Ben and I spoke about and sort of, you know, where you're at now? I, another question would be, um, how does an NP differ from a DNP, from a CRNA, um, and, you know, from an MSN? Yeah, you know, I essentially... I went right out of high school into nursing school. Usually there's about a year of the biologies and the chemistries and certain levels of math and communications classes, your prerequisites you would take. Um, I was in a fortunate place where my mother advised me and was working for a local community college where I was able to get those done early, do those uh, in high school and then the summer after high school and then go right into LPN program. So I had my LPN license at age 19 and started working part-time on the weekends as a nurse while completing my associate degree of nursing, which is what most of your RNs are, unless they attend a four-year program where they're getting a BSN degree, which is a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. So I uh, got out and started working as a registered nurse, and within a year I moved to that float pool position that I referenced earlier because 
I didn't want to do the same thing over and over again. I liked the, the variety. It helped me to stay engaged and continue learning. And then the path for me to a uh, master's degree, which is what I currently have involved, uh, first getting the bachelor's degree. So that was a lot of theory, a little bit of statistics, epidemiology, um, informatics, so looking at how clinical decision-making tools are created, things like that. Um, and then at that point, once you have that BSN, there's, I believe, four or five branches you can go into. There's a family nurse practitioner, you have a acute care nurse practitioner, and the family nurse practitioner, which is what I am, functions outside of the inpatient model, so they're working at your urgent cares, your family medicine practices. Um, acute care is really limited in their scope. They could probably function in an urgent care, um, but they are only trained to see adult patients, and typically those are going to be the ones that are in the hospital, working alongside the hospitalists. You have the nurse educators, which are people that want to go back and pursue uh, teaching, becoming a professor or assistant professor. You have uh, nurse midwives. And then I believe there's even a, a terminal, like a master's degree in informatics for people that really just want to look at the numbers and, and develop new tools around that. So that's the general branch decision-making point. And for myself, the FNP offered the most variety. So if you're an FNP, you can always go back and do acute care. You can always go back and do a, I believe it's like a one-year emergency medicine uh, course, clinical fellowship. I don't think it's appropriate necessarily to call it a fellowship, although some places are starting to do that. So a fellowship is typically much more involved if you're looking at the, the time difference. So I said, well, this has a lot of variety, so I'll do this. And I, I did have the intention to primarily treat uh, adult patients because the process of going through a differential on an adult patient is very rational, whereas a lot of times um, in children there's a strong you know, psychosomatic component to the pathology, which I find to be a bit you know, puzzling and confusing. I'm more in the, uh, the rational box when I like to problem solve. So I had the intention to primarily treat adult patients and the coursework is about a 30-month process, two and a half years after the bachelor's degree. So there are some programs that are faster or slower. It really depends on the time you want to set aside and do that. Um, usually people will either quit working to pursue the program or at least cut back on their hours and work part-time, which is what I did. I worked uh, you know, typically a shift or two per week while I was doing my uh, MSN program because I really wanted to dive in. I didn't want to just coast through because the programs have good content, but you get out of it what you put into it. So lots of paper writing, uh, lots of case studies, lots of developing the treatment plans. And this is before you are actually treating patients in person. So I would say that's similar to your medical school when you're looking at the courses like, you know, your A&P, advanced A&P, pharmacology, advanced pharmacology, looking at medical statistics and epidemiology, all these sorts of things. And you go back through it, it's less of a speed run than it was in the ADN program. The associate degree of nursing program, you're essentially eight weeks, here you go, this is this body system, this is this body system, and you just speed run through psychology, cardiology, res you know, your uh, respiratory system, just very quickly. You go through most of the common disease processes. Now you don't necessarily go through every condition that you're gonna ever see, 
that you could ever potentially see, but you know your red flag signs, when to refer, how to treat common things. And then you go into the clinical environment and you start putting all the pieces together. So in my opinion, I think that should be done under a MD or DO. Some programs in some states will allow you to do your clinicals under an NP. And I think that the quality is gonna be more variable from NP to NP than from a MD to an MD. Because medical school and the residency, from what I understand, is very intense and demanding. So you're selecting for the most intelligent people to get in, and then also the most resilient people to follow through and complete that four years of medical school and the residency. So that's kind of how they compare in my mind, in a just very simple way. Um, but as far as the you know, actual getting to where I am now, uh, I think that having a great internal medicine MD was a great tool for me. You know, I've kind of taken a bit of every practice that I've been in, all the best parts there, all the best you know tips, tricks, all the best uh, clinical findings, for example, you know, physical exam tri tricks, things like that, and incorporated that into the practice that I have now, and I continue to do so. You know, every time I meet a new you know, uh, interesting clinician or clinician that says something that I'm not familiar with, I always want to pick their brain a little bit and then see, okay, is this something that you know, is evidence-based? I think the functional medicine world is a great point of this. Uh, some people will say, you know, if you hold something close to you and you feel good, you know, that's a positive aura, it's far away. I don't want to discourage anybody's you know, beliefs, but for me, that's not something that I incorporate into my practice. I'm more, like I said, very hyper-rational and data-driven. What I believe I practice is like evidence-based integrated medicine. So you take your, your patient and the first thing you want to do is true preventive medicine. You go down your checklist, what do you want to prevent from happening? And then your patients, you say, okay, what are your specific goals? Well, how do you, like, what are your areas for improvement? Do you feel like you want more energy? Do you want to lose weight? Those are probably the two biggest things that I hear people talk about. And then you build an individualized plan to get there. For some people, they you know, don't want to take medications and that's fine. You can use supplementation. Uh, targeted supplementation is very important. You, you know, I don't have a take these 10 supplements stack for every individual patient, but you take it a very nuanced way and say, okay, if we're trying to increase, you know, dopamine signaling is a very popular topic, something that people are commonly asking us. We'll say, you know, okay, well, we can do this. But, that's kind of how I think of it is the smart prescribing, smart supplementation, and then pursuing what a individual wants to pursue. Um, and we have the you know, flexibility to do that with our individualized medicine program. Mm -hmm. That's one other question we get about the individualized medicine program often, is they say, well, I want to sign up, but um, tell me more about working with Gillette, or more about working with James. And part of signing up for the individualized medicine program, um, you know, as we've talked about, there's lots of differences in the education of an MD and an NP. But what you're getting specifically with our team is we talk together all the time, uh, pretty much every day. And uh, you're, you're getting that question. So, and if we have a question, a lot of times we'll ask a bit as well. So uh, you're getting, a whole team of people that work together, but you're getting it from a different perspective. So there is a difference, and depending on what your goals may be, um, you might want to sign up for uh, like one option versus another. But regardless of the option 
that you're getting, you're getting the whole team anyway. Yeah, I think that's a great way to phrase it and to kind of circle back to something you mentioned, the the DNP, so I guess the, the furthest terminal degree in the science of nursing. Uh, based on the courses that I've seen looking at these different programs in the universities, it appears to be a largely a, a nursing theory degree as opposed to a clinical practice degree. So it's more so looking at a organizational system or an academic role as opposed to, you know, the doctorate degree where you are a medical doctor. So I think in the academic setting, if you are a professor, it's appropriate to introduce yourself as Dr. So-and-so. But if you are a DNP in a clinic or a DNP in a hospital, I think it's a bit misleading and perhaps confusing for patients to introduce yourself as Dr. So-and-so, because there's lots of doctorate degrees, but if you are a, a lawyer, for example, you don't go into a hospital and introduce yourself as Dr. So-and-so, people are gonna be very confused. There's definitely been some instances of confusion when a patient introduces themselves as, I'm Dr. So-and-so, when you know, I walk in, they say I'm Dr. Gillette or Dr. Kyle, and then they say I'm Dr. So-and-so, and then you know they're uh, a doctor of uh, something uh, didactic. They're a doctorate of, uh, you know, let's mathematics say, professor. ethics or mathematics, which is great, but it's just confusing because when they say that, it kind of uh, turns on my brain to where you're trying to meet the patient at their level, and you almost just assume that they're a medical doctor, and it's just not good for communication, and sometimes it takes a minute to figure that out. Yeah, and that's a setting where it's on the patient's side, a context where the patient says something and it could be potentially, you know, confusing for the provider and the patient both. Now imagine the setting where you are the patient and you go into a center where you expect to see a medical doctor and someone introduces themselves as a doctor, you're going to just assume that person is a medical doctor. Yeah, um, that would be quite disconcerting if I was a patient and someone introduced them as a doctor. Um, I would feel like it was false advertising unless they were an MD or a DO. I do get patients asking about Dr. James. So um, obviously I, I kind of make it clear who they're going to work with. And obviously never going to say anything negative about, about James, right? But I'm just saying uh, MD, NP, obviously you can, say, you can say Dr. James all you want, but there are differences here. And we don't really spend too much time explaining the whole background, but it's great to have a discussion today. Uh, so, you know, hopefully people understand that it's different backgrounds with the same goal in mind at the end of the day, but coming from different perspectives, which is super interesting. Like I, re I really love having this chat. Yeah, that's a great way. Different backgrounds, but the same goal in mind. And I think that's true of any healthcare profession, like at the end of the day, people are trying to help their patients, but mm -hmm. to talk about the differences, and, and this could be useful for people listening, you know, I talked about my clinical rotations, which could be anywhere from 600 hours to 1,000 hours, depending on the program that you're looking at, you know, compared to a residency, you know, just kind of talk a bit about what the hours that you're committing during a residency are, like how much more uh, time with patients and pathology exposure you're getting in, in a residency, for example. It's not unusual to have 
an 80-hour work week during residency. In fact, before they implemented these new laws and they limited residents to 80 hours a week, and you actually have to time track this and submit it to the ACGME, which is the accrediting body for graduate medical education. And often it actually ends up limiting your moonlighting opportunities more than anything else. But it is not unusual to have 80 hour work weeks, um, lots of night shifts, and in general, um, residencies are at least three years. So, and that's after a, uh, a medical school that is usually four years long. Right, so if I'm looking at the, say, total time, the number of courses spent on strictly the, the nuts and bolts, the, the meat and potatoes, the pathology that I'm looking at, it's probably two years of the coursework from both the like, associate degree nursing program and the master's degree program are going to be actual clinical practice because there are courses in the you know, informatics and nursing theory that are sprinkled in there. And compared to that, it's probably 50% of the four-year medical school, but then the clinical hours or the residency hours is a much more vast difference. You're looking at you know, 600 versus six to 12,000 hours of post, I guess it's postgraduate experience where you are putting all the pieces together. And a lot of that experience is supervising other residents as well. So you, uh, you learn a lot by watching, you know, often before medical school, you even shadow physicians, and you, you do learn from shadowing, and then you learn a lot by having preceptors or attending physicians, and um, you will hopefully be doing it, it won't be shadowing, but you'll be doing it under supervision, and then as you become a senior resident, and there's interns that you're supervising, and other junior residents that you're supervising, you're doing a lot of that supervision yourself. And that is also extremely helpful. And not only are you supervising, you're also being supervised at the same time. So again, there's multiple stops and there's multiple people looking out. So it's not only, uh, you know, let's say you're an intern, you have a, a senior resident supervising you, sometimes a chief resident supervising you, an attending supervising you, the pharmacy team supervising you as well. So there's a lot of different people that are looking out for you and you pick up those same things intuitively. You say when you start medical school, you have um, uh, an incompetence, you're not competent yet, not because you're completely incompetent as a person, but it's just called um, unconscious incompetence. And then you um, slowly develop the realization that, so you're conscious of it. So then as you get later in medical school, you're conscious of your incompetence as a healthcare provider. And then through residency, you have uh, what we call conscious competence. And this often develops during the intern year. That's when a few months after your residency, you finally have the feeling, I can actually do this. Um, I, uh, I'm competent and I know why I'm competent. And then after residency, especially after years of practice, often you develop um, an unconscious competence. You're still competent as a healthcare provider and you're still making many of the same decisions and following the same patterns, but you're not as um, conscious of why that is. So you know, another way to say it is you know more what to do, but you are not as sure why. 
and ideally, uh, as a lifelong learner, you continue to know what to do and concurrently know why that is as well. That was an exercise that I used personally in my clinical rotations, right? After, you know, let's say the first week of clinicals, I would say, okay, this patient has this, so we're going to do this. And the preceptor would say, okay, now why? And then I was like, well, because that's what we do for that. So then I would have to go back and he'd be like, come talk to me tomorrow and explain your reasoning for like this. So it was like a little bit of a homework assignment, but then after a while I was doing that intuitively and often explaining it to patients as well, you know, in more or less detail depending on what level the person wants to be spoken to on. So it's, it's yeah. something that I always ask myself if a, you know, an intervention is being applied, then I want to make sure that I understand it myself, I can explain the underlying mechanism, um, and then I can also explain that to a patient on a level they can understand. Yeah, the Socratic method, or um, lots of questions for people learning to be healthcare practitioners is particularly helpful because like you said, um, you know the why and you also are able to explain it back to the patient that allows you to make a shared decision making. I guess that's a good segue into um, your, your perspective on things like this. Um, from a medical affairs standpoint, you're in a lot of different settings and in a lot of different states. What do you see as a um, different cultural shift or perhaps regional shifts um, regarding different degrees and um, how they are referred to or accepted in the clinical area? Good question. There's a lot of variability um, state to state in terms of uh, what's different degree or how different degrees practice. Um, I think the best approach um, at least from a medical affairs perspective, is um, give everybody um, the same baseline of education when they're learning a new therapeutic area or how to use a new drug. Don't ever assume, you know, just because this, for example, this person is a dermatologist or a dermatopathologist and have 15 years of experience that they're going to know uh, more than let's say, you know, somebody who is an RN uh, with five years of experience, um, they might, they may know the same amount. So, you know, it's, it's from the industry and medical affairs perspective, um, continued education is paramount. And, you know, it's, it was interesting listening to you um, describe uh, your change in, in self uh, perspectives, of, you know, your, con your um, unconsciously incompetent, but it reminded me of the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, which is, yeah, you know, you, you, you start to know a little bit, but you think you know a lot until you learn more and realize you don't know anything. Yes. Um, so I think, you know, that's, as a provider too, um, it, the, the ones that I see hungriest for knowledge tend to be the, the ones that are the most experienced and the most specialized. You know, and in, in conversation and in collaboration, you know, they're always the first to admit when they don't know something. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting thought experiment. Um, and generally, they perform the best um, in research uh, as well because they are consistently asking questions. Yeah. And, you know, this makes, um, as a provider, this makes you extremely valuable. 
as well. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you believe that you know all there is to know, you probably aren't asking very many questions. So that makes you, you know, generally a poor collaborator. They probably don't have interest in research, you know, so it's, um, and, and really your, your interactions are limited purely just to CMEs um, and more education, you know, and it's, there, there's much to gain from, from being open to learning more and doing research as a provider, especially a young one that is really just starting and getting their footing in a certain therapeutic area. There seems to be a great filter of extinction when it comes to the curiosity, the wanting to ask the questions, and that great extinction seems to be upon reaching the terminal degree, whether it's an MD or a PhD or a PharmD. You, we've seen a lot of our colleagues get that degree and be extremely curious, they want to dive in, they want to, um, you know, publish new knowledge. And then after getting that degree, it's just kind of assumed that they know everything that they need to know. And then they no longer need to look anything up. I mean, I've even had people tell me, um, you know, uh, that I, I don't know what I think about uh, your practice style. You look things up so frequently. And it's just baffling that that would be perceived as a negative thing. Right. It's, um, that's, I, I've seen that as well. Um, and was absolutely mind blown uh, by, by a patient feeling uncomfortable with their provider gaining more knowledge to treat them. You know, it's, yeah, it, it's, that's what you should not only want, but expect. You, you know, it's, it should never be discouraged. Inve additional investigation should never be discouraged. You know, and, and so that's, I guess, as in my current role um, in medical affairs, you know, that's really, it's the favorite part of my job is when somebody's asking questions, right? And it's, you know, and they're basically, you know, tapping into industry to give themselves an interdisciplinary team to build a study out of. And it's, you know, it's super fascinating if you, uh, you know, if you look at global KOLs, key opinion leaders, what are they most likely to do? Collaborate, research, ask the important questions, and share their findings, you know, on, on a big platform. Yeah. And, you know, you look no further than, than the colleagues that you've sat down and had conversations with. You know, Dr. Huberman, for example, is a great one at disseminating uh, novel insights that he's gained, yeah. you know, and, and particularly uh, outside the scope of what his PhD um, and primary research has been. Mm -hmm. And it's super, it's a super important learning lesson, you know, and there are other ways to take this, which is, you know, as a provider, if you want to get involved um, in industry, there are many routes to do that. And there are a lot of different, dis you know, advantages as to why somebody might want to do that. And in, in industry, you're certainly not limited to collaborating or researching with physicians. For example, it is not uncommon at all to have a key opinion leader who is a nurse practitioner or, or, or a PA. And, you know, they also lead CMEs, 
they publish studies, um, they have projects funded, they lead, uh, you know, cadaver courses, and they fill, you know, they fill the exact same role that that an MD or DO would fill. Is it less common? Certainly, and I think that goes back to the the different types of education, where you know, James, you you tend to think a lot more like a, a PhD in, in terms of looking at the literature and really having a deep understanding of why you're doing what you're doing. And, and you know, that's, so, so I think there are, are less NPs and PAs that take those, you know, KOL roles, but you know, the ones that ask those questions are, are phenomenal KOLs and they're great clinical collaborators to have in, in, in industry. And I, find, I, I see generally it really elevates their practice as well. Yeah, that's interesting. You can think of that as the selection process, whether it's a, an MD or a, a mid-level provider that's going to be the KOL. They're essentially very motivated to look into something they have, they're passionate about and it's personally interesting to them. So they want to pursue that to the highest level and then be able to, just like you talked about, things that you find valuable in your practice, you do feel inclined to share those with other people because at the end of the day, we're all trying to help our patients feel better, look better, live longer, you know, just whatever their individual goal is, the goal at the end of the day is to help the patients. When you're looking for a specific goal of a patient, that also helps the empathetic approach, so the empathy, really feeling what they feel in their shoes. Again, going back to medical education, if you look at empathy, it's generally very, very high in individuals who start medical school. And then it just slowly, or slightly more precipitously drops off as education progresses. And there's a lot of different reasons for this, and perhaps some of it is inevitable, but maintaining the view of seeing things from the patient's perspective is gonna help maintain a higher level of empathy. Yeah, it's actually a big issue um, when when the thought process from the provider is provide me with a protocol. I want to know how much to use and at what, for example, uh, how much drug I should use and at what dilution. Just tell me, uh, tell me the protocol per the anatomy. Um, and you know, in my case, working in dermatology, you know, how, how old is your patient? Is what's their epidermal thickness? Uh, you know, and getting them um, in the con specifically in the context of, of tissue regeneration, you know, you have to. It is a lot more nuanced than just a certain dilution and a certain volume in a certain anatomy. And so that's where you have to understand you know, really at, at a deep level, what are you doing? And sure, this expert consensus says this, says X. And generally, 80% of the time, that might be adequate. But you have to know what to look for, and you have to understand, you know, in, in regenerative medicine, you, you really have to, I, I think, put on the engineering hats and look about, or look at things from a, uh, a mechanical and a morphological perspective as well, right? So what tissue type are you are you emulating or what type of de novo tissue uh, regeneration are you driving? Um, and so that's, 
it's, it is a difficult conversation and regenerative medicine as a whole really is new. And so, you know, by default, it has to be personalized, you know, and when you start talking um, tissue engineering and, and, you know, and wound repair where you are using um, autologous uh, PRP, for example, right? You know, by nature, by default, that, that already is individualized, but, you know, it's just, your approach has to be so dramatically different um, and patient specific that, you know, it's, it really is an entire paradigm shift um, in, in, in the way that people are practicing. It's exciting to see because I think the outcomes generally um, are better and, and more personalized, at least in the context of, of aesthetic dermatology. But, um, but yeah, the, the people that are adapting early have, you know, have been extremely innovative. Uh, and, you know, it's just, it's a good exercise, you know, to, to put yourself through, which is, you know, constantly thinking about the patient, not the protocol. This is a tool, not a treatment. I think this is a good example of how some clinicians, they have personal experience of what worked for them. For example, one specific protocol or medication or one thing that made a huge difference. And that can make it even potentially harder, especially if that protocol, well, even if that protocol is not a part of expert consensus. But uh, either way, if you have personal experience, then you need to avoid having that as a confounding variable or a, perhaps a fallacy and you're trying to apply that same diet or medication or supplement that really helped you to all of your patients. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, that's the first place my mind went when you were starting to talk about applying one thing. Typically it's gonna be, you know, in the context of weight loss. Oh, this diet worked for me. I've seen this diet work for some people. This diet is the best diet. Yeah. And you know, the truth is there's many different diets and many different medications that can affect weight loss. And we think in terms of averages. Mm -hmm. So on average, a GLP-1 agonist is going to be the best weight loss medication. In general, metformin doesn't tend to cause substantial weight loss, but there are some patients and we've both seen cases of this yep. where somebody starts on metformin and then you know, a year later, they're 30, 40 pounds lighter. And is the medication a catalyst for the healthy lifestyle or are they just a really good responder to that medication? It makes the case even further for individualizing treatments and you know, not just ruling something out because, oh, it, it probably won't work. Although you do want to be you know, realistic with the outcomes. I don't think that even these clinics that you know, do promote GLP-1 agonists and they guarantee weight loss. You know, if you look at the studies, there are people who will gain weight on GLP-1s. You know, it's not a 100% and nothing's 100%. There's another interesting point too that I wanna um, bring up is um, anecdotal evidence. And don't, as a provider and specifically as a researcher, um, don't fall into the anecdotal evidence is meaningless category. Um, and if you're a patient, be skeptical of those providers because, you know, at one point, 
every observation was anecdotal until it was peer-reviewed, published, and then in a review article, and then made its way into an expert consensus. You know, so I think there still is value to gain from anecdotal reports, uh, and obviously, you know, they need to be taken with an extra grain of salt. But you know, that's where a lot of inspiration and study concepts come from. Uh, so, you know, it's as a provider, maybe pay mind. Um, even a little bit, uh, and same as you know, as a patient, there there could be useful information there, um, but also keep in mind that it is anecdotal. You know, so walk the line of of you know giving it a look, but not not uh, taking it for an absolute truth. Yeah, and I think when you get into anecdotal things, people will make multiple changes at the same time and attribute it to a single thing. Or they will start a single thing and then subconsciously make those changes. So essentially they are placeboing themselves into health, which is a positive thing, but I think that the placebo effect in particular is just such an interesting topic, because if you look at how strong the placebo effect can be in trials for you know, treating depression, you, know, you have a couple of moving parts there. You know, your efficacy of a placebo could be as high as 60 or 70 percent. So you're looking at a condition that is self-limiting in many cases, so it's not going to persist forever. And then you have a, you know, say a pharmaceutical company in a case that has to show a strong effect size in a short amount of time. So typically they're going to develop a therapeutic dose that is on the you know, more aggressive end of the dosing range because they want to develop that meaningful effect. So the level of nuance there is, okay, we have more than eight weeks to you know, build towards your health and we want to minimize side effects. So we can start with a much lower dose, but there's all kinds of interesting you know, placebo effects. You look at studies for you know, testosterone boosters and you'll see a 20% increase in testosterone from a, a sugar pill essentially. A person believes that they're taking a test booster or believes that they're taking a you know, anabolic steroid in some of the really old research, I think from the 1970s even, uh, they get stronger and they feel better and it's, it's placebo. So you can certainly harness that if you are you know, somebody who is starting an intervention and you really believe in it. It's If it's neutral at worst, it's likely to work well for you. Say, well, I'm gonna go on the Mediterranean diet, which has good evidence and I'm going to lose weight and be healthy on this, you know, that's a you know, neutral at worst intervention. It's probably going to be a good diet for many, many people. Yeah. So you can use that, believe in it, stay committed to it, and then improve your health. A lot of the, um, the or I guess the last few years uh, with selective androgen receptor modulator research and use has been a really interesting uh, sort of thing to watch unfold. Same with botulinum toxin literature, uh, where you see really not a ton of primary studies, um, but but the you see some survey data, and the survey data uh, seems to to tell a completely different story than some of the research. Right. So one of the one of the um, SARM studies that we talked about. Uh, yesterday was the survey study that you know showed an overwhelming majority of respondents said that their um, SARM use was worth it, 
you know, and this will, you know, this pulled a significant number um, of, of anecdotal SARM users, uh, despite the fact that there is no compelling liter literature on selective androgen receptor modulator use um, in humans for performance enhancement. You know, it's it's a very interesting. Basically, throwing enough anecdotal reports together for a publishable survey study, you know, it, it probably that may be actually a good way to approach analyzing anecdotal data. But always interesting to see where they diverge um, from from basic science research and survey data. Yeah, particularly in the context of when you've had some third-party analyses on some of these things, they find that there is none of the actual ingredient in there. And if a majority of people are responding well, or it would appear a majority of people think that they're responding well, they're getting the typically a cosmetic benefit or a performance benefit that they're seeking. Uh, but then there's also a significant incidence of side effects, and you can you can even have side effects that are placebo, nocebo, yeah. um, nocebo yeah. effect. Nocebo. Exactly, people with uh, atopy, atopic diseases like asthma, allergies tend to be particularly sensitive to this. Uh, and Ben and I were talking about a study the other day in users of medications and then how it's framed in terms of side effects for the right. patient. Now, I would want to pull up the exact study because I'm probably going to butcher it and give wrong numbers, so uh, sorry about the inaccuracy here. But you basically, you can have three groups, and then the first group, you just tell them, hey, this is a pill for your blood pressure, and it's going to solve the problem. And you don't really educate the patient more, which is, is it unethical or not? That's not a discussion, but that's the first group. So you just give them that drug and you don't tell them too much, just positive outcomes is gonna help with blood pressure. Um, second group, you give them the pill, you give them the name of the pill. You say this is, for instance, propranolol, whatever. And then the third group, you give them a pill, again, whatever drug you choose, and you tell them, for instance, with finasteride, there's a five to 10% chance, or even lower actually, um, of erectile dysfunction. And, uh, you know, just caveat, just a side effect that is possible. Um, you bet the first group is going to have the real uh, instance, the real um, percentage of side effects, which is going to be whatever, 5 to 10%. The second group, they will probably go on Google. They'll probably research a little bit. You know, they're being told this is a drug I'm taking. I'm, I just want to make sure there's no side effects. Um, they're going to have twice as many uh, side effects. And then the third group where you kind of educate them, so you're doing the right thing as a provider, you tell them pros and cons, but you do tell them the cons, and they will have 30 plus, 40% side effects. The more educated the patient is, uh, or educated, roughly educated, just being aware, uh, can increase the incidence of side effects. And that's where you have the, the nocebo effect, which is well uh, investigated in literature, and it's really interesting to look at the, the nocebo effect in some uh, specific medications that we deal with. So finasteride is a big one. We have people that are terrified of taking finasteride. They, want to, they, they don't want to have hair loss. Uh, and I mean, I was that guy. I mean, I was, I was this guy who would, would be taking finasteride. And yeah, uh, now I'm getting in my head about it. Uh, whereas having experience dealing with patients, you see people that take finasteride and they'll feel really good. And I'm like, damn, I, is it all in my head? You know, is it, is it a nocebo effect? Am I aware of, do I know too much? That's something that, that may actually happen. So the nocebo effect is very interesting. And when I, when I look at the uh, discussions about SOMs, and uh, so the selective androgen receptor modulators, you have um, a lot of 
those are sourced on the internet. Uh, it's underground labs and uh, they do third-party testing. I'm kind of questioning what kind of third-party testing they do. Uh, they have qualitative testing. Okay, they may have their HPLC, whatever they may, they may have that nice spike and, and they say it's 99% purity. Okay, but you advertise it at, I don't know, uh, 25 milligrams per milliliter. How much do you actually get? It's 99% pure, but I would want to see quantitative uh, testing being more extended. So when someone ships their, their raws to whatever, uh, chemist in Europe or something, uh, you would want to you would want to know how much there is, not if it's the right product, because then next thing you know, you get your rad 140, and you think you're taking 10 milligrams, but you're actually taking a half milligram or whatever, yeah. uh, and you know you just you feel good and all that stuff, you know it's 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 working, and you're hitting your PR at the gym, but that's placebo, and we've seen this many times, and not just limited to UGLs, but also in supplement industry because it is. Yes unregulated you could have a, a an error an actual case study that was reported 200,000 IUs of vitamin D in a, a supplement that was not supposed to have that much so you know the quantitative and qualitative analysis is a, a great way to look at how these things potentially should be self-regulated by the individuals you know for example a supplement company yeah I believe Dr. Huberman and Dr. Andy Galpin talk about this quite often is that you need to use reputable companies that do third-party testing and hopefully the third-party testing starts to include both the qualitative and quantitative analyses in the future. Even the most reputable websites where SARMs are usually procured, um, we've seen patients get labs and SARMs have very characteristic lab profile and there's just no way that that patient was on a significant dose of SARM. Perhaps they were given something else, not RAD140 or LGD or Austrian or whatnot, but um, you know, it's quite obvious that they were not on it. And they're like, yep, I've been taking it every day. Here's my bottle. They show us the bottle and that it's, they've been taking it. So um, in those instances, it just really makes you a healthy skeptic with anything in the supplement industry. Um, there's always potential, even with pharmacies, for having low quality or for having less than ideal uh, quality control. But hopefully that qualitative and quantitative third-party testing is implemented more across the board. Uh, I think that, uh, again, just like supply and demand, the public can demand a higher quality of testing, and that will help in the future. That's important as a, as a company, you want to associate yourself with uh, compounding pharmacies that take those extra steps and are very transparent with how they work. We've been uh, interviewing, so to speak, a few pharmacies and we want to know exactly what's going on. Uh, because we've seen too many times, even if it's just a bad batch, it's, it's a, you know bad luck or whatever they say, but we see that uh, even from a compounding pharmacy, sometimes you don't really get the, the testosterone output that you would expect. Uh, so that's that's something we see, and you would be thinking that something as basic as testosterone, cepionate, uh, you know, should be pretty standard, but it's not always the case. So you have to be careful. Yeah, if you have a pharmacy that's producing variable quality of product, when you're using that product as an intervention, you're going to have variable outcomes in the patient population, and what you want is you know the same thing in and out over and over again, so you have that consistency. 
and you know, where these pharmacies are, are sourcing their raw materials from, I, I believe you know, there's been whispers of these are all going to have to be FDA-approved facilities that are producing these raw materials to try and you know, cut down on some of the variability in how things are, or how compounding pharmacies' um, medication quality varies so much. You would think that's always the case, but always. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.